Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. So here's what Justin Trudeau said yesterday after the death of Fidel Castro. It is with deep sorrow. Now, the Prime Minister of Canada purporting to represent each and every one of us, because he likes to say, I speak for all Canadians. It is with deep sorrow that I learned today of the death of Cuba's longest-serving president. Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century. A legendary revolutionary and orator, Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. While a controversial figure, both Mr. Castro's supporters and detractors recognized his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante. I know my father was very proud to call him a friend, and I had the opportunity to meet Fidel when my father passed away. It was also a real honor to meet his three sons and his brother, President Raul Castro, during my recent visit to Cuba. On behalf of all Canadians, Sophie and I offer our deepest condolences to the family, friends, and many, many supporters of Mr. Castro. We join the people of Cuba today in mourning the loss of this remarkable leader. So, uh, the reaction was swift, and to the rest of the world, with the exception of Justin Trudeau, fairly predictable, fairly condemning. So what did Trudeau say today at the Francophonie Summit in Madagascar? Try to backpedal. He certainly was a polarizing figure, and there certainly were significant concerns around human rights. That's something that I am open about and highlighted, but on the passing of his death, I expressed a statement that highlighted the deep connection between the people of Canada and the people of Cuba. Canadians know that I always talk about human rights, including here yesterday, including with Raul Castro two weeks ago and wherever I go around the world. That was Trudeau trying to backpedal. And then, Philippe Couillard, the premier of Quebec, although in Quebec they call them prime ministers, Mr. Couillard had to, or Dr. Couillard, had to chip in. So he headed the Quebec delegation to the Francophonie, and he backed Mr. Trudeau, and Prime Minister Couillard said... Yes, his accomplishments will be remembered in various tones of gray, some white, some black, but historians will have to decide this. I see no controversy in describing him as a giant of the 20th century. What are they serving at the Francophonie? Fidel Castro was a brutal, human rights-violating dictator who murdered his own people. How many braved the sea between Cuba and Florida to get away on leaky rafts? Anything to get away from that island, get away from Castro. But Mr. Trudeau, Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century, served his people. A legendary revolutionary and orator, Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. While a controversial figure, both Mr. Castro's supporters and detractors recognized his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people, who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante. All right. 
Let us talk to Nelson Taylor, who's the Director of International Relations for the Cuban Canadian uh, Foundation. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Taylor, thank you very much for taking the time, Senator Taylor. What did you think? What's your opinion of what Mr. Trudeau said about El Comandante? Um, I think it was really upsetting and, and disgusting indeed. Um, he's not talking for for Canadians, definitely. He's not talking on behalf of anyone but himself. And I think it's an embarrassment, it's an embarrassment for, for himself, for his family, for the Liberal Party, and, and for the entire country to have someone that doesn't differentiate uh, between uh, uh, president, which is uh, serving his people by uh, mandate, and a tyrant who's been there the entire life for almost 60 years, and uh, tyrannizing an entire country where three and four generations of Cubans uh, never had never known any leader other than Fidel or Raul Castro. What were some of his most egregious violations of basic human rights? Well, so many ones. If you check the uh, the 30 points of, of the human rights uh, charts under the United Nations, not a single one, not a single one, despite of the propaganda, uh, not only by the left, by the media, I mean, academia, even some conservative uh, elements, uh, there is no such a thing as, as uh, good health care and education in Cuba. So all human rights are violated in Cuba. You cannot speak your mind. You cannot think freely. You are afraid of, of everything. You, you, don't, you don't dare to say anything that challenges the, the status quo, not even in front of friends. So once you live in freedom, uh, it takes time for, for those who, who are victims to realize no, that they are really free and start talking uh, more openly about what's going on. It takes, it, it's, it's really a victimization of, of an entire society by not being able to, to speak their minds, to just uh, assemble freely and let alone having elected representatives. What do you think the sentiment is in Cuba now, now that Fidel Castro is dead, what do you think the sentiment of the Cuban people is? Because I find it interesting that they have a nine-day mourning period. That's a long time for an official yeah. mourning period. Yeah, I can tell you that uh, I was reading a, a website which is very popular outside of Cuba because Cubans, as probably you know, have no access to Internet. It's a famous blogger. Her name is Joanny Sanchez. And she was saying that uh, the regime forbade the sale of alcohol so you can imagine what kind of morning is that when they they don't even want people to get drunk to celebrate no? they, with the cheap alcohol that people can afford in Cuba. So uh, I believe that uh, some victims uh, will be uh, uh, acting like a, like a, in a play, the type of play that you saw when a North Korean leader died. Right. You could see even three, four-year-old kids uh, mourning and crying. So you probably will see some of that, but deep inside, deep inside, the population will be relieved that this this guy is finally gone, and and definitely celebrating. Most most people will be even, uh, getting drunk with some kind of uh, illegal alcohol. Mr. Taylor, do you think it's possible that Mr. Trudeau, with his effusive praise for Fidel Castro, 
may actually have hurt the people in Cuba by substantiating Fidel Castro and providing more credibility, if you will, for his brother, the current president, Raul. Is it possible Mr. Trudeau may have hurt the people of Cuba by what he said? This is an excellent point, because the, the only thing that can uh, separate uh, these people from uh, respite of freedom is the international community. And if free countries, if the leaders of a free world take the side of the victimizers, there is no way that there's going to be freedom in Cuba. Because this so-called constructive engagement, it, it has nothing to do with the Cuban people. It's only serving to enrich the regime, the, the family, the clan of, of Castro's, the acolytes, all, all those around him. And, and definitely he's saying, you know what? We don't care about you guys. We, we care about this family who is in power. It means the status quo. They are probably uh, stable so-called stable, and they guarantee that our investments will be uh, having uh, an unacceptable profit. So probably that's what he means, no? but uh, legitimizing the, the status quo. But it's definitely going to make it worse, the same way Obama made it much worse for the Cuban people. And, and by now, the entire opposition movement in Cuba is, is against the uh, approach the new approach that Obama implemented. And now Justin Trudeau wants to reinforce by visiting the dictatorship. Uh, my, my concern is that going forward, Raul Castro will take strength from statements, this statement, specifically this statement, from Mr. Trudeau and the ambiguous statement by the outgoing president of the United States, Barack Obama. Mr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. I... Uh, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks to you. All the very best to the people and the country of Cuba, better off without Fidel Castro. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir, for the time. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. With us, back with us, is Dr. Timothy Ball, Canadian climatologist. We spoke yesterday with uh, Tim Ball. We ran out of time because we had some adventures with our phone system. Um... Dr. Ball is going to be meeting with U.S. President-elect Donald Trump's transition head of the Environmental Protection Agency in uh, the United States, Myron Ebel. Tim, good to uh, resume our conversation. So um, let's just, for the benefit of the people who weren't with us yesterday, remind us why it is that you're meeting with Mr. Ebel and what the meeting is likely going to be about. Because Mr. Trump has on many an occasion said he believes the human-induced global warming argument, AGW, is um, a hoax. He seems to have softened his position somewhat. But what's the meeting going to be about, do you think? Yeah, the story about him softening his position, of course, is, is being put out by the Democrats and others that don't want him. But um, he, he's been very, very firm on this. And um, what triggered it, well, my meeting with uh, Myron Ebel, who's at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, was uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts in Australia and I put together a program challenging the bureaucracies of, uh, who are pushing this to produce empirical evidence. And, of course, they, they couldn't do it. And uh, that word got back to uh, Myron, and who, by the way, I've known for about 30 years. And so we were invited to Washington to make the same presentation and show how they've adjusted the data and, and the science of it just simply doesn't hold up. 
So that's really what it's all about. So you have, there's no doubt in your mind, based on correspondence you've had with Mr. Ebell and what you know about Donald Trump's position um, and other correspondence you've had with Americans, that Mr. Trump is, when he's president of the United States, he will not pursue the the, the uh, direction, the path chosen by the United Nations, the IPCC, and supported by Mr. Trudeau. Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, that the whole global warming issue and the focus on CO2 was central to Obama's shutting down the coal industry in the United States. Yes, it was. And, and so uh, by dealing with the global warming issue, he deals with the, um, the CO2 issue, the coal issue, the energy issue, and the uh, use of the EPA for regulations using bureaucracy to create regulations to end run the legislative process. So it, it's, it's a, a, a huge winner for him in that context. It's been the central thread throughout his presidency, the, uh, the climate issue. It's always come back to whether it's been Mr. Obama speaking, whether it's been John Kerry speaking, whether it was uh, Secretary Clinton when she was Secretary of State speaking. It always, Tim, came back to the issue of climate. Well, of course, this is the problem, and, and, and as you know, you and I have talked about this for many years now, uh, global warming was a, a nice uh, threatening issue that uh, most people didn't understand, and, um, and they could easily marginalize people like me, and I know you had Lord Moncton on your program and others. Many times. We, yeah, well, yeah, it was easy to marginalize us as skeptics or climate change deniers, um, but the, the truth is that um, it... it it's not a hoax. Uh, Trump calls it a hoax. It's not a hoax. Ho- a hoax has got a funny portion to it. You know, it's to prick pomposity, but it's a deliberate deception to uh, make CO2 the problem and, and then therefore to get legislation through like carbon tax and control people and control economies. And uh, so it's very central to what Trump wants to do. But uh, Obama bought into it, of course, because, um, you know, it, it's a nice... Um, uh, issue by which he can control people and, and energy and the whole economy. You know, uh, I've said this many times as well. If carbon reduction were an economic bone, it wouldn't need any laws. People would be jumping on board voluntarily. Uh, you know, every business would be on board. Well, exactly, and they call the the phrase is carbon sequestration. And and just to give you an illustration, I've been yelling, if you believe CO2 is a problem and you want to get rid of it, why aren't you paying the farmers? Because every time they grow a crop, they remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Well, the the Premier of Saskatchewan has just passed legislation to that effect, but you're absolutely right. In fact, Patrick Moore, the founder of Greenpeace, has been going around the world saying, look, and I, as you know, I've been saying it for a long time, CO2 is, is an, a very, very important gas. Plants uh, depend on it. And in fact, if we have an increase in CO2, it, there's no climate problem with it, but there is a huge benefit in terms of, of plant growth and yields. And by the way, proof of that is in commercial greenhouses, they pump in up to 1,200 parts per mil- million, which is three times the atmospheric level. So no question in your mind, Tim, that when the Trump administration takes force, takes effect on the 20th or 21st of January, actually the 20th and then the 21st, they're in the offices of January of next year, they will be moving in a very, very different direction as far as climate is concerned. Yes, and and of course the other problem that uh, Trump has 
with the United Nations in general. And a lot of Americans uh, feel that, um, you know, that that's a socialist agency that's dictating to the world. And, and uh, so the, the climate issue is one of these. So, yeah, it'll be in the first hundred days, no question. Yeah, well, we know Mr. Trudeau went to the U.N. and said Canada is back. No ego issues with that, gentlemen. Thank you, Tim. Good talking to you. What's the name of the... Tell, remind us of the title of your book. Oh, it's it, the uh, uh, Deliberate Deception of, of uh, Climate, and um, it can, they can get it on Amazon. All right. Dr. Timothy Ball, B-A-L-L. We'll talk to you when you come back, Tim. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I want to start off with... Uh, with speaking with one of the members of the U.S. College of Electors. And those are the people on the College of Electors. They're the ones who will cast the final ballot as to who is going to become president of the United States. They will be the ones who make the final decision. The voters make their decision, and then, based on the numbers of votes, the members of the College of Electors are, are chosen, and, uh, and then they vote on who's going to be president. Michael Benarian is an Electoral College member in the state of Michigan, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Michael, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with this. Before we talk about some of the responsibilities you have and what's likely to and and maybe not to happen, Mm -hmm. I I was reading stories about you, and I find that you've been receiving threats, including death threats, including people um, threatening to shove a gun down your throat. Yeah. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, it's a side effect of uh, this election cycle. It's been divisive on both sides. And, you know, after Donald Trump won the state of Michigan and the electors from the Republican side, myself and 15 others, were chosen, uh, the inundation of, of, of Facebook messages, emails, I'm getting probably four or five letters to my home every single day, uh, started to flow in. And unfortunately, some of those were some death threats, some death wishes. And um, it's it's really sad to see uh, as an american you know that's not how we like to to conduct ourselves and i i think it's pretty un-american to have been receiving those kind of things from other americans how does that affect uh, affect you mm. yeah you know i i really try not to let this bother me because if you uh, these people essentially are just bullies and if you uh allow bullies to think that they're having an effect on you that they're changing your day-to-day life then you you're letting them win and i refuse to let them uh really cause any problems in my day-to-day life i i i try to ignore it at at worst they're just annoying (laughs) so but other than that you know i can't i'm not i'm not taking these people seriously they're just they're just bullies and unfortunately that's just a pattern we've seen out of the the left not just in this country but around the world yeah and i i admire you for taking that position because they're just Mm. most of them are just blowhards and they're, they're mm-hmm. upset at the fact that Donald Trump won the election and you're a convenient target. The fact that they find out where you live and send you letters, that's, a, that's way, way over the line. Um, t- tell us, please, how do you become a, a member of the College of Electors? How does that work? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. It's such a vital part to our process, but not a lot of people know about it. So essentially what happens is every state does this differently, but in the state of Michigan, the uh, Republican Party and the Democratic Party and actually every other party uh, who has a presidential candidate on the ticket, nominates 16 electors for the state of Michigan. We have 16 at their state conventions. So in August, the Republican Party of Michigan had their state convention, and I was elected as one of our 16 
uh, electoral college voters so that if Donald Trump won Michigan, which obviously he, he ended up doing, we would then be the electors to cast those ballots in Lansing on December 19th for Donald Trump and Mike Pence for vice president. Do you uh, do you campaign for the position? You know, it's not it's not really like a prolonged campaign. We split up into our district caucuses, so we have um, 14 congressional districts in the state of Michigan, and each congressional district has an electoral vote. I'm in the ninth congressional district, so we broke up into our caucuses during the convention. Anybody who wanted to be a candidate um, was nominated by another member, and that was seconded, and we all got up and gave speeches, talked to people, and within that little caucus, they conducted a vote, and uh, I was elected. And um, I, was, I was very lucky. We got a lot of really passionate uh, activists, Republican activists, that believe in the future of the party of the country. I'm only 22 years old, so it was a great honor to be elected by them. Yeah, it speaks a lot about you. And the confidence people people have in you, Michael. Um, well, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it's it's also it's it's more of just also a confidence just in the future. A lot of people um, look at young people and they don't necessarily think that they've really been involved enough in the system that they have maybe a, an inaccurate view of how the system is run. And I think it just speaks to our faith in the in the future too. So you don't need a safe space now that Donald Trump's won the election. <laughs> No, but I, I, I have some, some more liberal friends that, that do. I actually I attend university at, at Oakland University in Michigan, and we had a couple of my friends had their midterms canceled, which was uh, interesting. Couldn't handle, couldn't handle the, the trauma of being uh, a loser, I guess, in the election. Yeah. So, it's hard not to laugh. Yeah. It really is hard it, not to know, laugh. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's funny because... The, I was always brought up that you you have some ups and downs in life, and you just have to you know lower your shoulder and go through it. And some of these kids feel like they're entitled to having time off or having a safe space because they're just offended or upset with life not going their way. It's, it's uh, unfortunate, really. Uh, the only advice I have for them is get used to it, because you know yeah. the old cliche: life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. Michael, is there any question in your mind about this recount maybe changing things? You know, honestly, it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous, this recount effort. In the state of Michigan, for example, we haven't even certified the votes completely. The Board of Canvassers meet uh, by the 28th, um, so we, we still haven't certified the vote. But essentially, the results are in. They've been counted. They've been rechecked. The Secretary of State went through them. And unfortunately, right now, you're just seeing people who are really all about themselves trying to undermine our system and plant a seed of doubt in the minds of Americans. And it's, it's irresponsible. And I'd also like to point out that it's very hypocritical because I'm sure if you recall during the debates, Donald Trump was asked if he would accept the results of the election were it not to go his way. And he left some question in mind whether or not he would be automatically there to accept those results. And Hillary Clinton and the Democrats said it was a danger to our democracy it was uh, dangerous and that this was a horrible thing for him to say. And now when the tables are turned, they're hypocritical and they're doing the same thing that they said was dangerous and against the democracy and things like that. So it's, I don't think it'll change anything, but it really highlights the hypocrisy of the American left right now. I have a friend who sees a conspiracy in everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, he suggested to me the other day that if there is a recount, it will be because the left has found a way to rig the election 
as Donald Trump said he was worried would happen. And he worries that there will be um, a victory for Hillary Clinton because they'll have found a way to rig it. Now, like I said, my friend's a little bit he's borderline paranoid. So, <laughs> but, but I'm sure he's not the only person who, who feels that way. But let's step beyond that. And let's talk to you about what happens going forward. How many members of the uh, Electoral College are there? Do you meet as a group? How do you uh, how do you register your votes? Yeah, so there are 535 members nationally, and it's split up by each state. You know, it's funny. Uh, the elections are not federal elections; these are state-held elections, and each state is assigned their own electoral uh, voters, and we, as a state, decide how they're allocated. So it's not a national election. So we don't meet up. Uh, with all the other ones, what happens is each state uh, has their electors meet on the same day in their state capitals on December 19th, and we, in the state of Michigan, have a special session of the Senate, and we formally cast our votes. Those votes are then notarized, approved by the governor, and the governor sends those results to the United States Congress, and the vice president of the United States in front of a joint session of Congress reads out every name and every vote uh, for president and vice president of the United States. Michael, what's the rationale for the uh, existence of the Electoral College? Hmm. I, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful system. And uh, the rationale is, is ensuring that every American has a voice in the system. You know, a national popular vote, which, by the way, people throw that term around, doesn't actually exist. Uh, taking the accumulative popular votes of various states and their state elections that have their own election laws that differ from each state and coming up with this arbitrary number is not a real thing but the the electoral college is ensuring that big states like california and new york do not decide the fate of our elections every cycle it ensures that people in wyoming have a voice uh along with the people of california and uh it's 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 really a beautiful system because that's that's the american way it's it's ensuring that everyone has a voice and that's what the electoral college secures for people is that voice. Yeah, if you didn't have that particular system, looking at your population distribution, small mm-hmm. states like, well, where Bernie Sanders came from, Vermont, would be yeah. irrelevant. Correct. But yeah. but, but yeah. Vermont has its assigned numbers of members of the Electoral College, so Vermont has a voice, and ultimately a state like Vermont or a state like New Hampshire, which is another small state tucked away in the northeastern corner of the United States, those states could ultimately have a significant role to play in who becomes the president of the United States. Right, right. And I think it also speaks to how diverse our country is. You know, Donald Trump won well more than 80% of the geographical United States. And, you know, these people living in these very densely populated cities in California and New York have their lives that they go through and their view of America and how it's run. But then you have middle America where your manufacturing and agricultural uh, uh, groups come in, and they live different lives than Americans on the East and West Coast. And so to, to have your elections rely just on one part of the country really takes away a voice of, of all of middle America, which really live different lives than the Americans on the East and West Coast. Yeah. Michael, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Yeah. We'll keep an eye on how things go over the, over the weeks to come with that recount, but I agree with you. It's a lot of hot air. All the best to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
This hour, we're going to get at um, the issue of electricity pricing in the province of Ontario. And Kathleen Wynne, the Premier, has admitted she's made a mistake, as you know, on electricity initiatives which have resulted in Ontario residents, particularly the rural poor, having to choose between light, heat, food, and rent. In many cases, I uh, read you what uh, was in McLean's magazine last week. Premier Kathleen, just read it again, just a few lines. Premier Kathleen Wynne is calling high electricity prices her mistake, sounding a note of contrition on one of the major issues threatening the Liberals' re-election bid in 2018. Amid the usual rallying of the troops of the Ontario Liberals' annual general meeting Saturday, that would be last Saturday, not yesterday, Wynne addressed her poor popularity numbers, which she called the elephant in the room. Quote, I think that people look at me and many of them think she's not who we thought she was. She's become a typical politician. She'll do anything to win, end quote. She goes on to say, frankly, I may have, and I think I sometimes have given them reason to think that. Really? Like when you called us really bad actors, Premier Wynne, on greenhouse gas emissions? Or when you suggested that anybody who questioned the Security screening of Syrian refugees by the federal government. You and Premier Cuillard of Quebec suggested there might be racist tendencies. You think that might have registered with people? It certainly did with the former liberal premier of British Columbia, Ujjal Dussange, who called you out on it. But anyway, here we are dealing with what we're dealing with, and that is rural Ontarians in the main, but not exclusively, having to, in many cases, make the choice between heat and light, paying for their increasing, rapidly increasing electricity rights, even, uh, rates. Even you admit that, Premier, that you've been told that by people in this province. I am located in Ontario. Um, and paying for food and paying for rent and maybe adding clothing. They can't pay for everything. So they try somehow to manage their situation. And eventually it can result, it has resulted, and it is resulting in hydro cutoff, electricity cutoff. Now, one of the um, accidental bonuses has been the warmer weather this autumn, and it hasn't caused the kind of uh, rapid decline and uh, low temperatures being consistent. Now, I've spoken twice with uh, Francesca Dobbin, executive director of the Bruce Gray County United Way. She was on air with us last weekend. Um, Francesca was, after the Premier's mistake statement. And it's Francesca Dobbin who deals with people who are facing these distressing situations. What do we pay for? What can we pay for? People who find their electricity cut off. I read about one couple in Kingston. Uh, one of our Global News reporters wrote a story about a, a couple in, uh, in Kingston the electricity was cut off. They had flooding in their basement, but because the electricity was cut off, their sump pump didn't work. And guess what the result was? A flooded basement. And you know how much of a mess that is to try to clean up. So Francesca Dobbin is back with me uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hi, Francesca. Good afternoon. Good to talk to you again. Wonderful to talk to you. And it's amazing that the phone works. Mm-hmm. That's the best part. Well, no, the best part is talking to you. But I couldn't talk to you if the phone didn't work. Also, <laughs> we're just having our challenges this weekend with our telephone system. Paula is with me as well. She is one of the Ontarians who is dealing with facing um, these challenges of paying for spiking electricity bills and the other necessities of life. Hi, Paula. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. 
Francesca, would you just, for the sake of people who may be joining us for the first time or hearing about this maybe for the first or second time, just summarize what the situation is that you're dealing with as far as being the executive director of the United Way of Bruce Gray County is concerned, and what is happening to the people who come to you and say, help. So we run a utility assistance program um, through Bruce and Gray counties. We uh, run, you know, help people with OESP applications. We do everything related to utilities. And last year, with the 12 months when you put the winter in the middle, between us and all the other agencies, we spent over a million dollars on assisting people with utilities. And this fall, we just I just crunched some numbers uh, for you, just for you, Roy, um, as to what's going on. And we've actually seen, as you alluded to, the, the um, milder winter. You know, we haven't had, we've had a little snow here, but not certainly any cold and 15-degree days in November. So we've seen a 60% drop in the need for union gas, um, which is uh, tremendous. We've gone from 23,000. Uh, down to 16,000. It's it's really quite startling and um, it's really quite positive. But we've seen a 27% increase in the need for electricity support. So it's not about warmth per se, it's about just the functionality. And in rural Ontario, the delivery costs are double what they are in urban. Um, before you get paying for any electricity, uh, your bill's $44 in a rural setting, whereas $22 in an urban setting. And that's where rural is extremely disadvantaged on that. And so we, regardless of the weather, which is an, uh, sort of an unexpected boon, the, the need for help to pay for electricity bills remains significant. It's incredible. Um, all we did last week, my staff, I have one staff who's totally full-time on utilities, another staff who supports her, um, and all three of us were working on utility needs all last week. I started working on a fundraising letter because we're desperate for dollars on Monday, and I closed the file Friday without having added any more letters to it, any words to it since Monday afternoon. Uh, we were so busy getting people reconnected, um, stopping the disconnect, because it just seems a, a, an acceleration going into this December 1st mor- moratorium that Hydro One uh, voluntarily does. The moratorium being they don't cut people off after December the 1st? No, they, uh, Hydro One and Union Gas both don't cut people off uh, um, December 1st through to March 31st. Hydro One will put a load limiter on, which reduces your amperages as to how much power you can draw from the system. And the problem for that is when you're in a rural area and you've got a well and maybe you've got a, a well shed that needs some heat in it uh, so that your well doesn't freeze, it's not enough power to do that, plus your fridge, plus your heat source, plus one more thing. So just the necessities of life. Not even the necessities of life. So you lose the necessities of life in a Canadian winter. And that brings us to where we were before, when we talked about previously, which concerns you, that someone may die. And indirectly, you've told us somebody has because of this situation. Yeah, it's it's a great risk to our community. This, you know, we, we live in a community that we want safety. I sit on a safe communities with Parachute Canada Committee for the Bruce Peninsula, and we're always looking for ways that, you know, we can reduce health care costs by people not being injured and hurt. And, you know, we got 
you know, all this safety equipment with traffic lights and everything like that. But we put people at risk because they're using candles instead of, um, uh, you know, electricity systems or they're using generators and it's getting a little scary. And they use candles not only for light, but also as heat sources. Oh, every time there's a there's a, a posting that's on Facebook of using tea lights and a plant pot, like a clay plant pot, and it radiates heat. And I just sit there and I'm like, no, don't do that. Um, you know, my, it's, it's, there were a Twitter feed. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, you know, one day this week there was five fires in my Twitter feed from different communities. And I'm like, uh-oh, what's going on? <laughs> and things are going to get worse. Things will get worse because the weather is going to get colder, significantly colder. Yeah, we're going to hit this Canadian winter at, at some point. Uh, you know, winter will come. The Earth it has tilted and, and the orbits and all that stuff. We will get winter. And then what? And, Francesca, we're talking about two counties in the province of Ontario that you're yes. responsible for for the United Way, right? Yes. Two counties. Not talking about the whole province. We're talking about two counties within the province. 160,000 people. Paula, you've... You, you know this situation firsthand, uh, up close, dealing with spiking electricity bills and having to pay for other necessities of life uh, for a family. And where's the greatest challenge for you? Is it the electricity bills? It is our electricity bill. Every year um, it runs like clockwork pretty much uh, March around income tax time. We get our bills all caught up and... Just over the summer, you know, it just whether it be summer, winter, they're just so high, it's hard to keep up with them. By the time my husband gets laid off and seasonal work that he does, and by the time January or February comes, the bill's so high. Just last year, actually, um, we almost got cut off, and we got uh, a friend of mine uh, told me to go see the ladies at the United Way, and they very much help us out with a couple of their programs. And if it wasn't for that program... We really don't know what we would have done. So you're sitting there, you're looking at the electricity bill, you're looking at um, either rent or mortgage payments, you're looking at uh, food, you're looking at clothing, you're looking at paying for the basics of getting through life, and the electricity bill is what's taking you into the into, sort of into the into the quicksand. Yes, it is. For the extra we have to pay on the electricity bill, it would be nice to be able to take that money and actually make sure the whole other bill is paid off rather than have to pay chunks of it and just make sure that the electricity is covered. D- roughly, pr- approximately, how much higher is the electricity bill than it would have been maybe two years ago, the, the, the bills that you're facing now compared to a couple of years ago? Uh, between 40 and $60 more. And that's significant. That, that yes, matters, right? That's, that's, that's a chunk of cash that goes for food and goes for, for, for rent or mortgage and and uh, and what about the hydro companies themselves? What when you what, do you call them and you ask for some some relief, some help? And what do they say? Uh, the fact that they are doing the best that they can, they give it to us at the lowest rate that they can, uh, and that's not much else that they can do about it. Do they threaten you with cutoff uh, verbally? Do they threaten you with cutoff by mail? Is it both? How does it's that work? Both. Uh, usually you get a couple of calls. Uh, if you don't answer your couple of calls, so you happen to miss them, haven't got back to them yet, it's not long following that a letter is in the mail. And what, the, what does the letter say? Here's a deadline, you pay us by such and such a date, or? That's exactly it. Do you know anybody uh, in your circle of friends and acquaintances, maybe family, who've run into the situation where they actually have had their hydro cut off? 
Yes, I have actually, and um, due to you know, it's we always hate to have to ask family to borrow money and stuff, but. Uh, luckily, my friend, her family was able to help her out. They had just been away on vacation, and the company just wouldn't wait a couple of weeks until she was able to, you know, I could have the money on this date. And they just said, that's too bad. We gave you this date. You'll just have to go through the process of re-getting hooked up and everything. That's just the way it is. Oh, so she, even though she did end up with power again, it was quite an ordeal for her. You know, if people experience a power failure for an hour for a couple of hours, they, 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 you know how your life changes. Oh, very much so. Like, literally, what do you cook? How do you cook? What do you cook? All your food starts Everything to go bad. Everything is all connected through the power. And then imagine uh, suddenly having everything cut off, and you know that it's been done arbitrarily, that the company's cut you off, and you have no prospects without help from perhaps Francesca Dobbin and the United Way, uh, and maybe, uh, I don't know if there are any other social service agencies that, that assist as well, but you have no prospects of having the, the hydro come back on. It's not like you know that there's a crew outside working on the post outside your house getting ready to reconnect. No, they've done exactly the opposite. They've cut you off. Oh, there's got to be many cases that are going through exactly that, I would imagine. What was the situation like for the person or the people you know? who? How long was their hydro cut off? And that, It was cut off for about a month. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, they had friends that, you know, they could put food in their freezers, stuff like that, uh, for heat. Again, the candle situation was very much so. And these are not bad people who were... No, they're just down and out. Just there's, I mean, the cost of living has gone down. Everything else has gone up. And if, if the hydro rates had stayed roughly where they were, they'd be able to... Maybe have a chance. Maybe at, goodbye. Yes. So the premier says, Paulette, or Paul, I'm sorry, the premier says she made a mistake. What would you say to the premier? Well, thank you very much, but could you possibly pay attention in the future? Yeah, and you wonder what... Francesca, what does the future hold? I mean, I we talked to Ross McKittrick, uh, uh, economics professor at University of Guelph on this program who's written for the Financial Post and the National Post and uh, columns like Ontario Electricity has never been cheaper, but bills have never been higher. And Professor McKittrick makes the point that even if you try to conserve, even if you try to use less because of the contract signed by the government with electricity suppliers, the cost is going to keep on going up regardless of what we do. So what are the prospects for the going forward, uh, Francesca? What do you... I mean, what uh, are they? The government has done some things. They've uh, canceled contracts and they've, you know, canceled the pile of potential new build or proposed new build. Um, so, the, you know, I'm hoping those things will slow um, the rise, you know, the increases down. Um, of course, part of the challenge is that the companies are guaranteed a certain profit level. And so while we are enjoying low-cost union gas right now and low bills because it's not very cold out, what's going to happen in May when they haven't met um, because the consumption is down? That's when things like global adjustment comes in and says, oh, you conserved. Well, we've got to meet our contract obligations, so we're putting the price up. And that's where we have to get back into this and get back into the weeds. Isn't that just terrible? I mean, you know. it really is terrible. So yeah. you do your best to conserve, 
Um, and as Paul is trying to do and her family is trying to do and others are trying to do, you do your best to conserve. And yet the slush fund, global adjustment, just keeps driving it up. So where's the relief? Yeah. Where that's, is that's the relief? That's what we're looking for. Where's the relief? What's the plan? Um, who's doing what? And, and everybody needs to be in on this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I don't know, Francesca Dobbin is uh, with me, uh, Executive Director of the United Way for Bruce and Great Counties in Ontario. And we were expecting a call from uh, Patrick Brown, the as I've been telling you for two days now, the Progressive Conservative Party leader for Ontario. But Mr. Brown isn't called or he's trying to call. And our, I apologize, folks, our phone system is just not working as it's supposed to. Once in a while, things go wrong, and when they go wrong, they really go wrong. So um, we'll see. Maybe we'll hear from Mr. Brown uh, before the end of the hour. But Francesca, uh, back to what what's going on in, in in the two counties that that you're responsible for for the United Way. Are you hearing from other from your contemporaries at other United Ways? Who are facing similar situations? Is there, a, is there a, is this a province-wide reality? Let's deal with that first, and then let's also look at what the premier has said, or at least the government has said. I think the environment minister said, or the finance minister said, or the premier said. One of them said that what they plan to do, and I, I wish the premier would just call, or the finance minister, or the environment minister. We're not that well. Today we're hard to find, maybe, but usually we're just at the other end of one 2428 But do you hear from other executive directors of the United Way that they're facing the same situation? Um, I don't, and and one of the reasons that I don't uh, through the United Way system is because of uh, we're one of only two organizations that cover all of Bruce and Gray counties in terms of delivering programs. I have twenty-one food banks. Where in most other centers they have one core organization that they flow uh, these funds and these supports through. So it kind of gets, I don't download's a bad word, but it, it works. Mm-hmm. So that it's not the United Way that's running the frontline program in those communities. It's a Salvation Army. It's a community okay. food bank. It's a housing resource center. They're the ones who are running those things. Because what I was getting at is, is there needs to be a, not only a political response, but there has to be a, a province-wide response from agencies that are that are facing, uh, that are dealing with the Paulas of the world of, of, of Ontario, and the couple. I mean, I read about this couple in uh, in Kingston, I think, who whose hydro was cut off, and then they had a flood in their basement. And their sump pump didn't work because their hydro was cut off, so their problem is amplified dramatically. And when when their basement is a disaster, and the place is flooded out, their situation is still not any better because their hydro still isn't working. I mean, they. Yeah. they it's, it's totally a cascade piece, and that's where the physical health starts to come in as well, because now they're living in substandard housing. There's mold, there's mildew, um, there's, you know, incredible oh. stress in the household. Um, if there were children in that household, children's aid would have to act because it's not safe. Um, and then you get into hundreds of thousands of dollars with children's aid being involved, all over a $2,000 hydro bill. How much? I think it was $2,000, two to $3,000, that one. 
and it's, I think, a child in foster care, the very first year, one child is about $100,000 because of all the lawyer's fees and all that, you know, support for the family um, who's fostering and all of that. And it's like, well, you know, you want your children in the, your community to be safe and warm, and but if the parents, you know, I, I totally object when we have to use children's aid to keep children well-fed and warm because of poverty. Oh, my goodness. You know, poverty is not bad parenting. Poverty is poverty. Poverty is poverty, exactly. Poverty is not bad parenting. But in times of crisis, you go for help where the help is is available. And I'm just looking for what uh, Premier Wynne had to say when she admitted her mistake. Uh, essentially what she said. I've got so many notes here. They're just piling notes on top of notes um, because there's so much going on. The Premier said... You should uh, see my desk. I'm sorry? I should see my desk. <laughs> well, I can only imagine. But, but she says, people have told me that they've had to choose between paying the electricity bill and buying food or paying rent. That is unacceptable to me. It's unacceptable that people in Ontario are facing that choice. Our government made a mistake. It was my mistake. Well, fine. The admission is fine. But what are you going to do to, re- to, to, to replace, to repair the, uh, the, the, the mistake? And you sent me an email... Uh, and it had to do with people and uh, people on disabilities, for example, and the monies they receive. Uh, people with disabilities only get seven hundred and fifty-three dollars a month for housing costs for a couple, but the average rent is eight hundred and fifty dollars plus. Here's the mess: utilities. So, uh, a new government, uh, assuming that the Liberals are tossed out, and if polling is correct, they're going to be in a major way. Uh, the a, a new government would still have to come up with some sort of system to either lower the hydro rates or raise the housing allowance for people with disabilities, and that's one group of people. It just the the issue just cascades, as you said, it cascades. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, this is it, and when when we look for solutions, we have to look at the big picture. We have to look at the income side of things. We have to look at precarious work. Um, what is a job these days? And what is the expectation? Um, you know, what is affordable? Um, you know, when a hydro bill used to be $100, $150 for, you know, a regular bungalow-sized house, three-bedroom kind of thing, and now it's four or $500, how does somebody cope with that when there is a change in income? When you are disabled, um, you know, somebody who's involved with community living, ages out as a child, goes to live on their own, and they have $753 for all their housing costs. That's sewer, water, heat, hydro, all of that. And yet we want them to participate in society. How does that happen? It doesn't. They released the uh, Index of Canadian Well-Being study this week, and they said that uh, Canada, Canada's economy grew by 38% per person between 94 and 2014, but well-being, which was measured by the Canadian Index of Well-Being, only grew by 9.9%. And nobody should feel secure just because they may not be dramatically affected at this point because one of the things the government has said that they will do is they'll transfer some of the costs from rural realities to urban realities. So people who live in urban centers whose hydro rates have climbed dramatically, but not maybe as much as with the same impact as rural communities, don't feel comfortable that it's not going to happen to you because, again, they've talked about transferring some of those costs to urban uh, 
uh, urban place uh, communities. Now, my neighbor had, and I talked about this uh, in the summertime when she received the the bill. She just told me suddenly, I have a I received a hydro bill for nine hundred and seventy four dollars. How for two months in the summer? There's, it's two people in their house. Air conditioning. Well, yeah, but they don't run the air conditioning all the time. And they certainly didn't have $974 hydro bills before. So this is just another example of where, where, where this is headed. And it's absolutely was absolutely unnecessary for this to happen. It's, uh, you know, the Auditor General for Ontario pointed out that the Liberals have overspent, I think it's by $37 billion over a period of years um, uh, on, on, on hydro, and that the taxpayers on on the hook for another $133 billion by 2030. And what well, does the government do? They argue with the Auditor General. Our municipalities are screaming. We had a, an article on the city of Owen Sound on their hydro bills and, and how they're reducing consumption. They had a, they're the ones with a $455 worth of consumption and a $10,000 bill. And when you really pull back, and, and they gave me some really interesting data through that story, was that there's 80 bills for just streetlights. And I'm like, okay, Why? And it's like, well, there's obviously somewhere there's 80 meters. Um, and so they're paying $22 per meter before the streetlights even turn on. And streetlights are in are on in off-peak. So it's the cheapest time now. It's probably an industrial rate and all that kind of stuff. But they're spending $22,000 a year on just having 80 meters because that's how the system got set up and, you know, as cities grow. So why can we not do something for the municipalities who have that density on the delivery side of things? That, you know what, the density is there. There's 30 people paying for that pole outside and the maintenance of that pole, which means there's enough, you know, enough of a delivery rate on that pole that those delivery rates can be compensated in some way for our municipalities. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML talking about the electricity realities in the province of Ontario and it will reach beyond the tentacles will reach beyond Ontario if certain political parties decide to do the wrong thing and then and then decide to fess up that they made a mistake by that time people are hurting people are struggling people are dealing without power and you heard Paula one of the residents who is just skirting around losing her power and paying the bills because it's so hard to do. Patrick Brown is the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party uh, of Ontario, and if polling is correct, then Mr. Brown is poised to become the premier of the province of Ontario in 2018. Uh, Mr. Brown, one of the one of the critical mass issues is, of course, the electricity pricing, and the premier has admitted that it's her mistake. Um, what can you do? What's what's in your what's in your toolbox that could reverse the situation, or if not reverse it entirely, make it more manageable, make it a doable reality? Well, it's the number one issue we're hearing around the province uh, by businesses, by families, by seniors. It is a crisis that we have to to deal with. I'm glad that the Premier has finally um, accepted reality and said that it's an issue and that it's her mistake. Yeah, but what, what what do you have in your toolbox? So, so what I want to do, I was just pointing out that the finally we have a recognition from the province that, that, that they've made a mistake. What we're not seeing is they're changing any policy direction. So it's one thing to admit a mistake. Here's what I've asked them to do 
uh, Roy, uh, in terms of changing policy. Um, one, stop the immediately. If I was Premier tomorrow, I would stop the fire sale of Hydro One. Um, they're still continuing that. Um, this will cause us to lose all future control um, of hydro rates uh, for Hydro One customers. The second thing I would do is I would restore municipal uh, planning uh, rights to uh, unwilling host communities. You have these wind turbines popping up all over rural Ontario for electricity we do not need, and we're ignoring the democratic right of those municipalities. The Premier had promised that these new generation wouldn't go in unwilling host communities, and that's happening. Um, the third thing I would do, and this is very important, um, it, we need to stop the, the, the surplus. Right now, since 2009, we've given away $6 billion in surplus electricity. It goes up each year. We give it away or sell it at a loss to Miss Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York. You know, I, I got a, a note from the mayor of Owen Sound complaining about the cost of 13 streetlights where he had a $10,000 bill. 4000 was delivery charge. 5000 was in global adjustment. Only $442 was actual cost of electricity. You know, a lot of people say, what the heck is the global adjustment? The global adjustment is where the liberals hide the cost of the surplus. It's where they hide the gas plant scandal. I can't get the money lost on the gas plant scandal back, but what I can deal with what we can do to, to, to bring relief to, to families is deal with, with the surplus. And so I'm going to look at what exit clauses exist in these contracts, where the notice to proceed hasn't gone a, uh, ahead for the new generation that's coming on. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but over the next five years, you're going to see uh, 500 megawatts, more, huge, huge new generation uh, sprouting around Ontario. Um, so it is bewildering why they're bringing more generation on. I understand that. We don't need it. I understand that. But in the short term, before the election happens, pressure has to be born, brought on this on this government to to do the things that you're saying can be done, should be done, ought to be done, need to be done, because families are not going to be able to survive this. And when I have an executive director of the United Way of Bruce and Gray County say repeatedly on the air that she worries someone's going to die because of this reality, that is that is absolutely terrifying, and to hear people who cannot can't afford their, their their just the fundamentals of life because of the hydro or the electricity prices, that's terrifying simultaneously. Plus, Mr. Brown, there's the reality: the businesses their their hydro rates have gone up dramatically. We have grocery stores that have become convenience stores because they've had to close so much floor space. Eventually, some businesses are going to say, "We're out of here. We can do business elsewhere. We can survive elsewhere." While in Ontario, it becomes an unmanageable situation. Not, not eventually, Roy. It happens. It happens every every week. I travel the province, and all I hear is the businesses that have left Ontario because of electricity. You look at Nature Fresh in southwestern Ontario. They just put two hundred million into Ohio because of electricity prices. Yeah. Stanpec in Niagara is doing their expansion in Texas. You know why? Because th their plant in Texas will cost $650,000 less a year on electricity. I have Those a minute. Jobs we need here. I have a minute with you right now. That's all we have left is a minute. What can be done for the people who are suffering now? Well, unfortunately, Wynne's not listening to our advice on this. She's not willing to deal with the surplus. You let, me, you let, me, you let me deal with that. You let me deal with that, Mr. Brown, and I will. Do you tell me, please, what can be done? Well, the only thing we can do is, is, is to defeat this Liberal government because they're not willing to make the change required to have competitive energy prices. What's and, the and, one, what's and, the one the thing, way, Roy, what's the one thing that creates that reality? 
or, or, or heads or heads the compass point in the right direction? Well, it would be to to get involved, to 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 don't uh, to go to ontariopc.com or forontario.ca uh, and help us raise this issue. Send me your hydro bill. I launched a website, hydrohorrorstory.ca, and I'm reading out people's hydro bills in the legislature, wow. trying to build public awareness yeah. for for what's happening. Uh, because she can't sweep this under the carpet anymore. Too many okay. businesses are leaving. Too many seniors can't afford their bills. Too many people got are all that. driven into poverty. Because I understand that. Mr. Brown, I understand that. What you know, Maybe you should get in touch with uh, Francesca Dobbin and talk to her. I mean, she'll give you the stories. She's given them to me. I know it has to be done. It, it has to be done. And there's no there's no time to waste because people are struggling. People. Are, I know you're not the government. I understand that. I, I get that. But that doesn't take away the reality that people need help. I know you're doing what you can. But And I thank you so much for the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Roy. Bye-bye. Patrick Brown, leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.